do it. Well, welcome to Something to Do, a podcast devoted exclusively to discussion and devotion of two of our favorite bands, Who's Your Do and The Replacements. Each episode, we'll be nerding out about all aspects of two of the most influential bands in the pantheon of American rock acts. I'm Jude. This is my co-host, Greg. So this time, we're discussing yeah. The Replacements' 1989 album, Don't Tell a Soul, released on Sire Records, um, an album in which they debuted Slim Dunlap on second guitar. Um, so what's new, Greg? Oh, man. You know, my... my see, I, I, it's funny. I've seen some people say, oh, my day job. But I'll say my other night job, <laughs> where it went, podcast, um, has been going full steam. I'm sure people, you know, if someone follows both, they they know. Yeah. Um, but we've had a couple weeks off, which has been nice. Um, and... Uh, I'm just glad to be back doing this and uh, hope I'm not going to make any promises. Cause I feel like every time I make a promise, like, Hey, if an episode comes, <laughs> if an episode comes in two weeks from the time this drops, awesome. If it comes in two months, I apologize in advance. I hope it's not two months though. Yeah. I- I'm shooting for, you know, two, three weeks, but we never know where life's going to take us. Yeah. True. True. Man, so some uh, in, in this sec- segment, what's new, right? So a couple like kind of big highlights have been going on. Um, so for those folks who were um, following along, Bob Mayer won a Grammy. Huge congrats to Bob Mayer. Yeah. Also, how wild yeah. is that? Yeah, I know. I mean, how wild is it that he obviously won it because he was on our show? Yeah. Mean, there's no other reason they would have given it. <laughs> it it's, it, you know, the, and it's, that that box set is obviously sort of it's related to today's episode. Right. Yeah. Um, not that we're doing it on the box set this time, but the box set will get its own episode. Trust yeah. me. Just just like we did with the um, please to meet me. But you know, I at one one hand you're like, I didn't know that there was a Grammy category for um for, for liner liners. notes. Yeah. But when you get this box set. And you look through, you're like, oh yeah, like a lot yeah. of work went into it. And, and, you know, he also, Bob Mir is also, a, you know, he was a co-producer, he got a co-producer credit on it, I yeah. believe, and, and all that. So it dawned on me that I have actually done podcast interviews with two yep. Grammy award-winning people, because uh, we had Bob Mir on here. And then on where it went, we had Dave Bett who won yeah. a Grammy for uh, some layout on a Bruce Springsteen um, box set. If we can do like a little plugging that episode of where it went so awesome, like him talking about like doing all the graphic design and layout, like for those like iconic rev records, like when he was like explained all the like logistical design challenges of doing the, and the inspiration for like the gorilla biscuits start today. I was like, I don't know. It just like blew my mind. Yeah. And, and, and what's, what's crazy too, is all that stuff, this kind of goes without saying it's common sense, but all that stuff was done by hand. Yep. So, you know, my, one of my co-hosts on, on where it went, Javier, he lives 10 or 15 minutes from revelation records, revelation records keeps, they kept like everything. So a, a original like schematics or whatever you want to call it. I, I think they're called, um, there's a word for it and I can't think of it, but like for the layouts, they yeah. have them all and you see the tape and like the whiteout and the, the pencil marks and everything. It's, crazy. It's, it's really cool. And 
you know, Dave bet it was interesting. Cause he was a couple years older. Like he was probably more from like the, like as far as punk, you know, he was more from like the talking heads, like that whole era, you know, the mid late seventies stuff. Yeah. But he got asked to do a layout for, I think like agnostic front or something when they were on in effect. Yeah. And he went to a show and he was just like, this is like nothing I've ever seen before. This is incredible. It's awesome. And he, he developed a, a deep respect for the genre. And uh, yeah, if, if you're into like the artistic side of things, I would re- definitely recommend that, yeah. uh, that episode. Yeah. And all kidding aside too, like huge congrats for real to Bob Mayer. If like, yeah, absolutely. You know, well, like, you know, completely deserves it. That's awesome. And uh, I'm hoping that the pleased to meet me, it's mm-hmm. nominated uh, for 2021 or whatever it will be. Yeah. So what else, Greg? We got a we got a record store day drop. You yeah. Speaking of, speaking of pleased to pleased to meet me. Yeah. Um. So record store day once again because of uh, the state of the world. Um. It's being put into. Usually, it's actually already would have happened by now, or well, by the time you're listening to this, because it's usually we're recording this in the beginning of April. Um, and usually it comes around, I think the third, like Saturday in April or something like that. But this year, again, it's in two drops. There's one on June 12th and then there's one, I forget the exact July 14th or whatever the Saturday is. Yeah. You can look it up. But, (laughs) um, the first drop will have yet another replacements release. Yeah. Um, it's called The Pleasure's All Yours, The Please to Meet Me Outtakes and Alternates. Um, so it's, again, June 12th. This is coming straight from the horse's mouth. Uh, it's a collection of material from the replacement sessions for their critically acclaimed fifth studio album, Please to Meet Me, um, which has been covered at length on the podcast Something to Do. Um, oh, they wrote that. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks, guys. This exclusive release features an entire LP of outtakes and alternates, which have never been released on vinyl before. Tracks include outtakes of Birthday Gal, Beer for Breakfast, plus alternate versions of Alex Chilton and Can't Hardly Wait, amongst others, limited to 10,000 copies. So um, that's a lot of copies. So I, I, don't, I don't think it'll be like a Tickle Me Elmo 1996 situation at the director's store right, but, like a jingle all the way yeah. <laughs> terrible man doll <laughs> but definitely you know record store day is always fun it's good to support um your local shop yeah um so yeah there's no other you know last time we had a, a bob release too there's there's no bob mold for this time yeah there is tad and Haler. yes the, uh and Lemonheads, too. There's some awesome other great stuff. Yeah, Lemonheads. What a uh, negative approach, tied yeah. down demos. That sounds cool. There's a lot of cool stuff. Uh, Police, two live albums. Cool, one, yeah. One from 79 and one from 83. The ones that were, they were originally on a CD, but now they're on like some neat looking vinyl. So, yeah, there's a bunch of cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, it'll be fun. So, hit up your local store. And, uh, yeah, I mean, really the, the rest is, you know, as we say, every time we're sorry for the delay <laughs> and we appreciate anybody that like, gets excited when they see this pop up, if you're subscribed, which subscribe, 
If you yeah. haven't, if you like what you hear, subscribe. It's the best way you can help us. Um, you know, we keep it bare bones. We don't ask for any money or anything. This is yeah. a, a labor of love. Um, and, but subscribe, rate on Apple if you can. Um, tell your friends. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Cool. All right. Do you remember? So this is normally where we outline things that we like corrections, but I don't think we got anything wrong last time. No, we, we, we just talked about flip your wig. Yeah, wigs were flipped. Way. Although I do want to give a huge shout out to my friend Steve Trankner, who saw and took a picture of a copy of the board game, uh, Who's Do in like, he was in like Target somewhere in like South Jersey. I've never actually laid eyes like in person on the game. No. Yeah, I, I've seen, I think uh, Matt Berliant sent a picture too before at like a thrift store. It was like a thrift store or something. Yeah. Um, but I've never seen, I, I didn't, so that was a new copy. It, it looked like a new copy. It looked like they'd kind of like, kind of rebranded a little bit, but it was still, still called Husker Du. Um, it's like kind of like a memory game as I understand it. I'd yeah, love to play. We well, we know it means, do you yeah. remember? Yeah, we should do a, we should do a live Instagram someday. And yeah, I don't know. Actually, I don't know how, well, we'd have to be in the same room. So we will have to plan that out, but that would be fun. Yeah. But yeah. Who's do? So shout out to uh, Milton Bradley or whoever. Yeah. <laughs> is, that a, is that a, I wonder if that's a Milton Bradley. I don't know. That might be Hasbro. Hasbro. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> so the real reason we're all here, let's talk about the replacements. Yeah. Um, don't tell a soul. Jude, what you got? So this is kind of a divisive record. Um, it's also a very important one. So we can talk about some of the divisiveness of it. I'm going to argue that it has had like maybe one of the most profound impacts on rock and roll, like as much as like a, a record like Nevermind. Um, I will argue on this episode um, that it just was really instrumental in creating that intelligent, moody, intense mix of like punk, college rock, blues, country that was aped by so many, so many bands after this album came out. Without this record, you don't get the Goo Goo Dolls in my mind, although Greg, you're a bigger Goo Goo Dolls guy than I am, so I'm curious to hear you weigh in on that. I don't I think you get the- opinions. Okay. I don't think but you get the, the Counting Crows, you don't get Wilco, you don't get like the entire like like folk punk scene is like always huge credit to this. Um, I'm gonna even go so far as to say like this record um, is instrumental in something like REM's 1992 Automatic for the People, which was produced by Scott Litt, right? Who later, um, before producing Automatic for the People, produced um, uh, All Shook Down. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I always thought All Shook Down was more automatic for the people is more indebted to that one than this, but I see what you mean. Yeah. I mean like stylistically, like the music. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. But so I agree. Like, you know, the thing is when music critics say that a band sounds like the replacements, this era to me is usually what they're talking about. Right. Like, right. like you don't hear like somebody saying they sound like the replacements and it sounds Poop like Manny. sorry, ma. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I think definitely, like you said, like, I don't, did you mention Ryan Adams? No, but huge, huge, yeah. huge. Yeah, like, good call. Like Ryan Adams, all that, you know, singer songwriting stuff, because as we'll get into uh, when we start talking about the lead up to the album, this was, uh, this was the first time they approached it too. And a bit more of a, you know, Paul came at it from a different perspective yeah. than the way they normally wrote. And, you know, that does lend itself to like your Ryan Adams. The Goo Goo Dolls thing is funny because they 
originally started and they were like old replacements. Right. You know, and then they sort of morphed into like, please to meet me was like their real, like to me when the Goo Goo Dolls were at their best, um, or, you know, I hate to say best because for a couple of reasons, one, I will admit, I actually enjoy even the later Goo Goo Dolls stuff. I can, you know, John Resnick is a great songwriter. Um, Robbie is a great bass player and also a great songwriter. He's, he's still to this day has, um, you know, songs on their newest records um, where he sings and it's cool. But to me, the sweet spot is when they were on that, like, please to meet me tip. So like from like, hold me up, superstar car wash um, and a boy named goo that like trilogy is very indebted to like, like a song like Alex Chilton. Mm. Right. Yeah. Having said that, it's funny that if you watch that uh, color me obsessed, have you seen that? Actually? No, I haven't. I have to watch it. It's embarrassing. I, I... it's on, it's on Amazon prime. It's, okay. it's interesting. Like it's, um, and I'm, I don't know if people know or not, but yeah, it is on, at least it was on Amazon prime as of a couple months ago. It's, it's a, it's told in like a linear fashion. Like it goes through the replacements from beginning to end. And this was, of course, the film was from pre um, reunion. Yeah. But no music from the replacements is used. No um, live footage, no interviews with anybody that was in the band. So it's basically like kind of like a long form version of right. what we're doing. Right. So to, on my end, I can't really knock it. I can see how people would say, I'm not interested in watching two hours of people talk about the replacements. But yeah, it's like an oral history kind of, right? Yeah, like there's some really cool, insightful stuff. But there's a clip of the Goo Goo Dolls. Uh, and they talk about getting this album, Pleased to Meet Me. Or not Pleased to Meet Me. Um, Don't Tell a Soul. Tell a soul. And putting the CD in the player and hearing the first song and then ejecting it and throwing it out the window, <laughs> which yeah. is hilarious now because, you right. know, less, less than, you know, a few years later, John Resnick's writing a song like Name, which is right. a, an incredible song, I think. Uh, yeah. You know, but he's, you know, so it's kind of like they were like, they eventually became what they hate. Right. Well, but then I guess, okay. So if you think back though, like you, you hear, um, please to meet me and you get an opening track, like IOU, it's just like balls to the wall, like rock song. And then you expect that as the opening track on this. I mean, I definitely like, I don't know when I was like 16 can think of it like a, a follow-up album I bought from a band or something. And I was like, this is not what I expected it to be. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's funny because I, have either the benefit or the detriment and you as well of i didn't hear these in real time right exactly well we'll so, get to that this was actually the last album by them that i heard yeah like so i didn't i didn't live with you know uh sorry ma and then get stink and and and, mm-hmm, and go on mm-hmm. to that so i get to i digested it all at once so for me it was kind of like you can you know you can go on spotify and you can literally listen to their catalog from beginning to end and you can hear the progression. Right. So in retrospect, I think when you listen to please to meet me and then you listen to this, like it's not take the production aside. 
the songs. Yeah. It's not a crazy leap. No. Do you think it is? No, I don't think so at all. Like it's, um, I don't know. I'm thinking of like a, like a, maybe a more contemporary band that like gradually made like a change, like a band like Ceremony or something like that. Right. Like, and like, you know, with each album, you're like, oh, this kind of like, like you can see where it's going. Right. But if you like open up Spotify now and like put on their earlier power violence stuff and then like put on like their most recent record, you're like, whoa, this is like a really different band. But, right. But if you go in, in the context of beginning to end, it it makes sense. I mean, same thing even with like an REM, right? You know, right that, exactly. or, or the Who's Curse, you know. Right, right. They started out as a blistering, fast, loud, uh, you know, basically a hardcore band, and then ended up writing, you know, really melodic guitar rock or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of any other like progressions I can think of that are similar. Where if you if you listen to it in a row, it makes sense. But yeah, if you're just picking and choosing and making a mixtape or whatever, yeah, it's it's jarring. But yeah, I think I think this record. Um, one of the complaints I'm sure you'll hear, and we'll talk about that too, is the the production. Um, more the mixing, and and that's you know pretty much now a known fact that. Uh, a lot of people's bone to pick isn't really with the production, but it's with the the mixing from Chris Lord Alge, yeah. Alge, Alge. I don't know how to say yeah. it. I'm sorry. I think it's Alge. Um, and he did like a, like, I know I've seen his name pop up on like, you know, later Green Day records and all that yeah. stuff. So the only like we usually, yeah. oh, go ahead, oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say like, we usually do. Let's, let's, let's kind of bring it up to speed. Yeah. Um, oh, real quick. Not that I need to like make provide evidence for my argument here, but like, so there's this cool book I got um, when I used to work at a bookstore. It's called the Wilco book, and it came out around the time of um, A Ghost Is Born. Um, and in it, there's like this like constellation of their influences, and there's like awesome stuff on there, right? There's like uh, Tom Waits, um, like uh, Sack and Trust, Minor Threat, like Bruce Springsteen, like a uh, for um, Wilco. Yeah. Yeah. And like, of course, right? Like one of the one of the artists listed is the replacements, right? So there's like, there's a ton of germs, Devo, like fear. Um, uh, yeah, like all kinds of cool circle jerks are on there. But, um, you know, not that like, I think if anybody, if you listen to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and you listen to um, Don't Tell a Soul, you're like, oh, you can kind of see like the connection yeah, between these two sounds, but um you know, just to further kind of kind of make the argument that um, I think this record is a really important one. I think it was a really influential one in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, no, and, and I think that um, I mean, this was supposed to be a bigger hit than it was. Yeah. So, so speaking of bigger hits, they're coming off of "Please to Meet Me" at this yep. point. So "Please to Meet Me," you know, I was thinking this. I don't. I forget how many copies it sold. Again, I I should. I should know this, but I want to say it was like, they sold like 300,000 records or something like that. Like not shabby. Yeah. And if you think about it in today, today, 300,000 would get you a number one on the bill on the billboard chart. But then it was like a blip, you know? And, you know, we already kind of talked about the problems that arose with that album where the, you know, having the ledge is the single and then having the get, you know, the issues with that and, and everything. And then, um so with this new you know the next record they're like all right because i think the mindset of a lot of these major labels back then was kind of like we'll get them with the next one 
Like they didn't they didn't get dropped, but it was more like, okay, we we've worked this one enough. Give us write some more hits. Yeah. You know. So they um they you know, like you said, uh this is our first one with Slim Dunlap. Right. So right. he joins, you know, after Please to Meet Me or during or whatever, yeah. like, but he's, he's not on the record. No, because that's that one they recorded as a trio. So that's, you know, we're looking at what, 80, 1987. So there's a little anecdote in Trouble Boys where they talk about like the band seeing the issue of Rolling Stone, which I used to have with REM on the cover from Document. It was like America's best band or whatever, best new rock band, something like that. And so here again is like, you know, there's there, the whole thread throughout the book is this like sort of frenemy relationship with right. REM, you know? Yeah. And, you know, of course that record is what really blew up REM. You know, they, they were one where every one, every release pretty much, you know, up until a certain point was bigger than the last one. Mm-hmm. Right. So and, and to further add salt to the wounds, who produced Document but Scott Litt, yeah. who they actually had turned down for Please to Meet Me. Um, so, yeah, so they have they have this, you know, they see this with REM and they're kind of like, all right, like we got to, you know, we need to do it. You know, because I, th- I think that got inside Paul's head. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, like, you know, um, it's evident from the first track, right? That story you told about um, hearing the CD and it, like throwing it <laughs> trash immediately. But, you know, that they're signaling a new kind of replacement sound, right? And I'm going to argue on this episode that I think they're carving out new real estate, like in like the world of rock and roll with this album that, um, you know, I mean, that's like a, that's like a, a ballsy thing to do, right? To like try out something new that hasn't really been done before that like later on people are like oh like oh shit like they were on to something with this right yeah they were ahead of their time exactly, exactly you know any of the million cliches that you get usually in, in these kind of situations with like the underdog band you know yeah and so yeah so document comes out so you know i, I guess there was a little bit of like this could have been us but yeah. you know blah 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 so for the next record Management sends uh, Westerberg a Tascam four-track recorder. So this change this changes everything because it, the writing process is now not really necessarily collaborative. Not that it was like super collaborative, but like you know Paul would probably bring the song. Like now it was like they would work the would, songs out in the studio. You yeah, know? like like right. yeah, exactly. Like now it was like he was writing an entire song with drum parts. He got like a drum had a drum machine. Yeah. And uh, apparently initially they, he wanted it all acoustic, no, no drums. So at this point, you know, obviously if you're Chris Mars, like that's not what you want to hear. Like, right. Hey, I want to do an acoustic record with no drums. Um, and they also talked about, uh, you know, Paul basically because of these demos, he got that thing they call demoitis where like you write the song as a songwriter and, and you get so used to hearing it in the demo version and how you envisioned it and that you're not open to any right like constructive um, feedback about it. Feedback. Yeah. So 
you know, that was tough for Chris Mars because when they're, you know, he's basically being told like, no, like this is the way it's played. Like you needed to, like, you, you know, play like a drum machine basically or whatever it was. Yeah. So Doesn't I think for creative expression of the other band members for sure. Right. Which, I mean, that goes even more into the next. Yeah. Um, so he does this, of course, they, then they opted out. He, Paul said something like he decided on just making the ballads more rocking and the rockers more ballady or something like that. Um, I forget the exact quote, but he basically settled on like, okay, like we're not going to, you know, I'm not going to completely abandon like the crunchy guitars or whatever. Yeah. I feel like on this one, they like, they took that angle and just kind of like turned a lot of stuff into anthems. Yeah. I, I agree. And so time to record, of course, they're like, well, who are we going to get to produce? So they, uh, they wanted, um, or not, they wanted, you know, of course the label was kind of like, um, Hey, let's, uh, why don't we get, why don't you have Jim Dickinson do it again? Cause please to meet me was still successful. Yeah. And they were kind of like, maybe, you know, and there's two versions of the story. Apparently the band, you know, the, the label people say that the band was like, no, because they were still a little miffed at him doing the, you know, mixing, yeah. you know, adding the strings and things like that after the fact. But Paul basically said, no, they didn't want Jim Dickinson because he didn't give them a hit. So they wanted somebody else. Yeah. So they finally end up after going, you know, they said, well, what about Scott Litt? And the band was kind of like, you know, not at this point, like we don't want to seem like we're riding on the coattails of REM. Right. Plus uh, Scott Litt at that point had committed to working on what became uh, REM's Warner debut green. Yeah. So then they finally settle on this uh, Tony Berg. So they go to Bearsville to record Bearsville uh, studios. And uh, you can hear all these, on the uh, Dead Man's Pop box set. So we're not going to talk too deep about this because we're going to have a chance to again later. But they go, the sessions end up not going great. They scrap it. And then they end up ultimately choosing who uh, became the producer, which was uh, Matt Wallace, who at that point he was fairly unknown. Like he mm. hadn't even done. So his big breakout was faith. No more the real thing, but that was shortly after this record. Yeah. And Again. then Matt Wallace. Yeah. He went on to do like, you know, he did a couple faith, no more records. He did. Um, he did an H2O record. He did oh, the album. Go. Yeah. yeah. He did their major label album. And then he went on to do Maroon five. So um he's so once again they were like ahead of the curve on that exactly so like yeah so they get matt wallace they you know go to record um now at in la or wherever matt wallace is at so yeah 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 and then like so um so what's going on so like slim obviously is like the new band member at this point and he's a couple years older than them um, and I think, was it Matt Wallace who referred to him as like a, like a quote country uncle? Yeah, I think so. And like, it is weird. Like it's such a replacements move to, you know, when they were trying to find new members, 
I forget if we touched on this in the pleased to meet me, but like, you know, instead of finding like a young hip guy, like, like to like a foil for, you know, Paul and Tommy, yeah, they get this dude that's like, you know, 10 years older than Tommy. Right, like a full generation older than yeah. him. Yeah. Or more. I, I, I forget. Um, I forget when he was born actually, but like, I just know like thinking like he was like, like in his, mid to late 30s when he okay so i'm looking he was born in 1951 dang so he literally joins the this band at like 35 36 years old yeah which to me now being 40 that's i'm like oh he's young but right. like <laughs> in in the grand scheme of things like that's old to be just joining this you know up and coming band yeah but he has a lot to it for sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, an amazing guitar player. Um, yeah, what else? So like some other things from that session, Tom Waits showed up at one point and him and Westerberg drank really heavily um, and just kind of like, you know, then uh, those sessions like are now available, but kind of like went, um, yeah, just kind of went, went wild in the studio one night. Yeah, and again, you can hear that on on Dead Man's Pop. I know, I know you're a, a big Tom Waits fan, so I figure yeah. when we when we get to that uh, box, that we'll we'll take a deeper dive. Um, so Tom Waits wasn't the only per well, Tom Waits they got to guest on the record, and then he didn't end up on the record. But yeah, uh, in the sessions anyway. But they also attempted to get uh, another famous singer to sing on um, a song, and the way that Bob Mayer tells the story in Trouble Boys, like is so so funny um so paul attempted to get an, a singer to sing one of the songs on it and that singer was ray charles um and only and only later realized that he asked ray charles to sing on the song they're blind yeah i think it was like his daughter yeah he's yeah. asking he's like oh i got this i got this song like oh we would love if your dad would sing <laughs> on it and he sends it you know I say Oops. send like it's a text message, but like right. whatever, you know, gave it. And it was the song, They're Blind. <laughs> They're Blind. And it, it seems like it was genuinely like a. Uh, like a Larry David kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, but you listen out. to that it's, song and like, you're like, yeah, I could, I could totally hear Ray Charles singing on that song though. Oh yeah. But it was, that's totally like a curb your enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, they're, they're trying to, sort of trying to play the game a little bit um you know going back to the rem thing peter buck basically talked about the difference between rem and the replacements is that rem were willing to play the game a little more yeah and, and peter talks about that in trouble boys and he basically says like yeah like we were willing to go into a room with business people and shake hands if it meant getting our song on the radio rather than them playing another like, you know, crappy top 40. Yeah. Like, so I see their take too. Like, yeah, we played the game. Cause you know, look at what REM did for music. Yeah. So it's like, they kind of had to do that um, to help with that sea change. Cause I think that it's a bit of a tangent, but you know, one of my favorite bands is is Nirvana too, but a lot of people think that they just kind of came out of absolutely nowhere. Which on the surface, sure, right, like it seems like that. But you had 
you know, REM's paving the way and who's could do and replacements. But I'm saying even on a bigger scale, like you had REM, you had then like Jane's Addiction that were actually, you know, very big with yeah. college radio and everything that Dino set Junior? the stage for, yeah. All these had major label stuff before, Never mind. Yeah. So Peter was basically like, yeah, we, we played the game a little right. bit so that we and could- we'll- yeah, exactly. And like the replacements were arguably just like pathologically unfit to do that. Like, well, like the Tom Petty tour stuff that they did in support of this record. Yeah. Um, that was, you know, kind of famed or infamous. Um, I, I used to work with, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I used to work with a guy um, who saw him on the Tom Petty tour. And um, he was like, it was one of the sets, like they got out and just like aggressively played their set in like 25 minutes there was no banter and then they just like threw their instruments down and walked off stage and that was it so he was like he went there like going he was like i was kind of fans of like both bands like i knew the replacements um and i also knew that i would kind of be in for like kind of a roll of the dice about what kind of set i was going to get that night um but he was like it was a really memorable set i wouldn't say that it was like the greatest live performance i ever saw yeah didn't didn't sal talk about also seeing yeah that that's right that i forgot about that um yeah i'll have to i gotta re-listen i gotta re i gotta go back yeah. to our backlog but yeah i believe you know because and the thing is is when you hear this record that tour makes so much sense mm-hmm. like that is that was like the perfect pairing for them but like you said they're just pathologically unfit to do what it took because i don't think it was the songs. So there's a quote from Scott Litt where he basically says like the replacements had, uh, and I know Bob Meir, when we talked to him, maybe quoted this or, or uh, paraphrased it, but they have 90% of what it takes to write a hit song, but they just didn't have that 10%. But I, I sort of disagree. Yeah. Cause I think some of these songs on here, even the ones that weren't singles could have been hits. Yeah. I agree but, with that. Absolutely. But they, they didn't do what it took. So speak, yeah. So to so with the petty, um, there's what was some mem- there were some memorable things that they did. Uh, yeah. So they would like get on stage, right, and they'd like mock. So they were obviously opening the tour. They would like mock Tom Petty's stage moves, and nobody would do anything. And then they'd be like, "Oh, you're gonna love it when he does it in an hour or whatever." <laughs> Which is incredible. Yeah. And like people would go there. Like obviously, "I'll Be You" is like one of their biggest songs. Like it was the single off the album. It had a video, and they would just like straight up just forget to play it and like add it to the set list some nights um and they just like couldn't like commit to like they couldn't like play like a polished consistent set night after night and make it seem authentic like they're trying to connect with the audience they would just like antagonize the audience in a lot of ways and that's where even though this isn't a punk record i mean they were still at heart like i guess like a punk band for better or worse which when we get to the songs themselves uh, I'll do some explaining, but I know there's also the the story of like though like Paul being on that tour and seeing Tom Petty play, you know, one of his big hits and everyone breakdown or something. Yeah. yeah, and he was just like, I, I can't do that. Like I can't. I'll never be able to do that. I'll never be able to go out and play the same song night after night after night and still get this like, you know, rush or whatever. Yeah. Um, but you know they they did try. They um, were on the award show, right? Uh, right. They 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 played on that was in like 
89. It was called the International Rock Awards. Um, and I have, I have a bit of more to say about that when we talk about the song Talent Show. But yeah, yeah. so we won't divulge too much right now. But yeah, they yeah. played on an award show, televised, you know, award show. It was like Got some basically hot water there. Yeah. Again. And uh, they made a video. Yeah, it's their first. They this was their first one since Bastards of Young, right? So they tried to do the ledge and it got rejected. And I think there's oh, like yeah. an Alex, there's an Alex Chilton video, but it's like. So the footage from the ledge, it's something like the footage from the ledge didn't have them lip syncing or anything. So I think they literally just like put the music of Alex Chilton over it. Um, again, this I probably need to reread Trouble Boys for a third time. Uh, but it was something like that. But yeah, they made a video for um, I'll Be You. I mean, I'll and Be like, You was their yeah, highest charting song ever. Yeah. It's amazing. Like it's a, it's yeah. You know, so, you know, they, 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 they did try, they tried more on this than they did maybe with the previous, but I think a lot of, you know, a lot of diehard fans complaints were with the mix because, you know, you'd always hear, and, and you actually, they do interview, by the way, I mean, if this is a, a reason alone to probably watch uh, Color Me Obsessed, although you can watch just his segment on YouTube, they interview Matt Wallace mm. and um, you can watch his entire interview. And he basically had talked about, you know, the record that we handed in was not the one that came out mm. much more raw and um, it, it felt more like a replacements record. And I remembered yeah. always being like, oh man, what I wouldn't give to, to hear that. So of course they lost that, um, you know, those, the mixes he did then, but that's how we got Dead Man's Pop is he was able to go in and kind of replicate to the best of his memories, like how it was originally. And they even redo, like the track listing is different. It's all the same songs, but it's in a different order, which, um, you know, we can touch on, but Chris Lord That's kind of sting so much. Like, you know what I mean? Like you get, it's like when you get a bad editor on a movie or something like that, like, you know what I mean? You get up to the very, you write great songs. Like you have like a solid recording in their case, you record them and then you try re-recording them. Right. After, it, it, after demoing them all and this, the four track at this. Yeah. <laughs> and then like at the very last, like as you cross the finish line, it comes out not the way you want it. So. Yeah. Cause you figure they went from Paul doing the four track Bearsville scrapping it doing this session with matt wallace thinking it's done the label of course wants somebody to create that you know put that magical dust on it that'll get it onto the radio that magical dust unfortunately makes the record now sound like an a record from 1989 yeah like it doesn't sound timeless Mm -hmm. like it should it sounds like it's from 1989 yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because really a similar thing happened with Nevermind where, you know, Butch Vig produced it and you can hear those original mixes. They're called the Devonshire mixes. And then, you know, the, they basically got, we're getting like fatigued. So they were like, let's have, let's have somebody, you know, mix it. It was something like that. Yeah. And then they got Andy Wallace. Yeah. And Andy Wallace is the one that really gave it that like, candy coated mm-hmm. sound which you know butch vig says that the band was happy with it after 
Hmm. But, you know, Kurt Cobain, he would kind of flip flop. And of course, you know, by the time of in utero, he was saying that uh, he hated the way it sounded. It sounds like a Motley Crue record. And, um, but when you listen in retrospect, in utero doesn't sound as dated. Yeah, you're right. Like you're right. It sounds like a record because Steve Albini just recorded them, made them sound like them. Right. Yeah. It doesn't sound necessarily as much like a slick, like early nineties record. And I think the same thing happened here. And, um, you know, it's, it's got to suck for the band and for Matt Wallace because your average person might not necessarily understand mixing and how much that can change things. So yeah. they just blame it on him, you know? Right, oh, right. well, this guy ruined it or right. the band ruined it. And it's like, no. So they tried. The album came out in, I believe, February of 89. Um, and it didn't make the splash that was intended. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little, I guess, before we get into the songs about our uh what's your relationship to this one yeah so this was actually the very last replacements record that i ever heard um i just for whatever reason that was because it was it was all released right like it was all available by the time i got into the band um i was married by the time i heard it um for some reason i was just under the impression that this was like a like a bad washed up like something like i just i was under the impression that i knew obviously with the replacements you're gonna get um uh, a range of sounds on any given album um and i was avoiding this one um because i i was like it's what's the point or so i don't know but then i i listened to it and i was so wrong and like i'm gonna offer a controversial opinion this might be like currently my favorite replacements record and i want to just like pause and draw the distinction between like favorite and best um, yeah javier arguing, yeah javier always talks about that on on where it went like and, and he's right. There's a difference between best and favorite. Yeah. But um, yeah, like this is the one that I, that, you know, I find myself listening to most often now in my life. So did you, you already knew all shook down though? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was, a, that was, a, this was a weird one to avoid. I don't, I was just like, I, for some reason I just didn't get into it. No. Until. Cause you see, I, I see, especially before dead man's pop came to life. I see a lot more bad press about this record mm. from fans than I yeah. do all shook down. Um, yeah. I, for me, they were all kind of within the same like month. Cause I went nuts when I, when I like, I think I might've told the story on our intro episode, but like I didn't get into them until late either. Um, I was in my mid 2000. I was in my mid to late twenties, you know? So like, Wow. It's kind of funny. I think that was like, you know, it was like 13 years ago yeah. now, but it was when those 2008 remasters came out with the yeah. liner notes. I'm always a sucker for like a nice booklet to read. And I was like, ah, now's probably the time I should get into the replacements. And, you know, I, I kind of worked from the middle out. Like I got Tim and let it be. And then I kind of just like went worked outward. Yeah. So like this one I heard towards the end, but yeah, I'm with you. I think there's, amazing songs on here yeah and you know pr production i can't not like a record because of production i can be like oh, i wish it sounded different you know because there's stuff that sounds like underproduced or i'm like oh man like 
you know, like the early Husker stuff. Right. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or, you know, even like, I think a really great example of that, but like new day rising, right? Like the production yeah. of that record is like kind of part of it's, it's such a, a, a integral part of the album that people like to complain about or find charming or whatever, but yeah, no. And, and uh, you know, I'm like, I'm thinking about like the misfits, you know, like so much of their stuff sounds like shit, but yeah. the songs are great. Right. Yeah. You know, so what are you gonna do? And, and never mind, like, you mm-hmm. know, as a 10 year old, it sounded like the most raw, crazy, abrasive thing I'd ever heard. But now I'm like, yeah, it's a pretty produced record, but it sounds great. Right. Um, I, I like, I don't, this one to me just sounds a little more, a little more dated than like a nevermind. Yeah. You know? But uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a great record. I, I mean, I don't, there's no replacements album that I don't like, or I wouldn't do, I wouldn't want to do this. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, let's do the track by track. Um, so track one, um, a divisive first track for sure, talent show. Um, Greg, what are your thoughts on this one? I, I said, I, I wrote that it's kind of meta, right? Because yeah. Is that the right, is that the right word to use? Like it's like they're singing about themselves, you know, yeah. like, and, the, and it's, this is the song they played on that award show. But it's almost like it's almost like they wrote this song knowing that like we're going to be playing this on an award show. Right. You know, we we go on after some lip sync chicks. Right. Exactly. I mean, that was like the era of the fake right pop star. I mean, this is like not that Millie Vanilli were chicks, but like you had like you know Millie Vanilli and yeah. Um, you know, this was I'm thinking like I'm thinking 88, 89. Like, what was like this is Janet interesting. Jackson. What, what was yeah? Like what was what was the best-selling album of 1989? Um, oh, man. I'm going to look it up in real time here, folks. But, like, that kind of gives – which, that's another cool thing about, by the way, about um, Color Me Obsessed. For each record, they would say, like, you know, this is the album. This came out on this date. This was the number one selling album of 1984. Uh, so you're like in, in relationship to that. So that's uh, cool. no, it brought me up to uh, Taylor Swift, 1989. But okay, here's one of the things. Bobby Brown, Don't Be Cruel. Okay, that was right. a big hit. So, yeah, you're, so you're in that yeah. whole era. And keep in mind, this is pre-Nirvana. It's pre, mm-hmm. I mean, 89 was even, Jane's Addiction hadn't fully popped. Faith No More, as we said, was a, like not until like probably 1990 red hot chili peppers. Like there was, you know, those bands that were on the fringe, like REM was basically the only one that was, you know, uh, green was, a uh, uh, preceded this by like a f- couple months. Yeah. So, yeah. So they, so they write this song and again, it's very meta. Yeah. Um, well, there's like the, 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 like, you know, classic rock trope of the like band member kicking in on the recording where like they're being called out when he's like, Hey, yo, Chris. And then the drums kick in or something. Yes. Yeah. And, and the whole, like, I love the idea that it, it falls apart in the middle. Yep. Yeah. 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 And then they, yeah which they, is like an idea that like a band like Nirvana, like really ran with. Agreed. Um, and you know, obviously I love the, the, it's too late to turn back. Here we go. Mm-hmm. kind of sums up the whole thing like you know what we're doing it guys like yep. we can't turn back now like we we are trying to you know reach more people 
is sort of the way I always heard it. Um, and then, um, so they also played on that award show. We talked about the international rock awards yeah, and uh, that went less than smoothly. Yeah, <laughs> you could say. First right? off, it opens with the um, the host says, "Like we apologize, <laughs> the replacements." Which is, I mean, that which is actually perfect. Like, it's so perfect. It is. And then Paul actually, the first thing he utters in the microphone is, "The hell are we doing here?" Uh. And I mean, if that doesn't sum up the whole thing, but. They, you know, so talent show has the line, um, feeling good from the, from the pills, pills we, we took, took yeah. and they were basically like, you can't sing that line. So they go through at the part where it would be bleeped. They don't sing. I think he changes the line or whatever. I, I haven't watched the performance in a, in a minute. And then at the end, instead of, you know, it's too late to turn back. Here we go. It's it's too late to take pills, you know, and of course the, this, they're not expecting it coming. <laughs> and I said, it reminded me of the excitement of, you know, the MTV video awards in 92 when Nirvana got out and started to play rape me. Yeah. Like causing, causing panic with the, uh, the suits. Yeah. And it's like, replacements did it first. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like not that it wasn't, wasn't cool when Nirvana did it, it blew my mind as a kid. Yeah. And I remember being like, what the, f- what the hell are they, pl-? you know, cause I watched it live. Like, right. I think, you know, once they, once they re-aired it, they cut off that beginning, but yeah, they started playing rape me, but yeah, no other song could have opened this record. No, no. I mean, they're signaling like a new kind of replacements record with this and like, but it's still the replacements, right? I mean, like everything that you talked about, it's just the perfect, like self-defeating, um, but like also amazing. I mean, this song was written to be performed at an award show that they get like in trouble for playing for. Like, exactly. Um, I, again, I think that with this song, they're carving out like on as yet unexplored real estate, like just in the world of rock and roll. And I, I don't want to overstate, I can't overstate my opinion about that. I think another, like, you know, you pointed out like some of the great lines in this one, but an underappreciated line for me is the empty seats in the first row, um, which like, you know, again, is, is so. That's I mean, like, like that. Oh yeah. It's like that descendants couldn't sell out a telephone booth. Yeah, exactly. Like that self depreciating, like, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's almost like they like, like foresaw themselves, like playing that Tom Petty tour after this and like, you know people not caring <laughs> them or them like kind of antagonizing the audience I'm, I'm thinking about empty seats at the award show and then it made me think of uh the seinfeld where kramer was the seat filler <laughs> 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 so maybe he could have filled in but if there's a lot of seats you know he's only yeah. the one man there's only one kramer they yeah i don't know they, they know how to begin a record so the second track yeah back, back, to, to, back. back. let's hear it greg I, I, you know, I, I, this is a great song. Yeah. I think that if this, if Jim Dickinson had worked on this record, this would have been like a please to meet me song. I can totally hear that. Yep. 100%. Um, like to me, it has the, it, it's, it's not a super big departure. Again, it's just the, the recording and the, and the mix that makes it not sound like please to meet me, but it's a, I mean, it's a great song and how it picks up and there's the, you know, I guess the really the, the 
this is where you really hear like, oh, they have a new guitarist, you know, because yeah. the, the little leads and everything. Yeah, good call. Good call. So do you have anything else for that one? No, I mean, I'm with you. I think it's a great song. I think this is where you really hear like the the production kind of distinguishing um, the songs on the album from other replacements albums. Um, so next is a song that I didn't, you know, when I, this was one that popped out at me the first time I heard it, but apparently it's a divisive song. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Sal, our, our previous guest hates this song. Yeah. I was, he, yeah. Went on, he went on record as saying it. So I, I don't yeah. feel like we're throwing him under the bus, but um, it's, you know, I always like when somebody's complaints are the th- reasons that you like something. Right. You know what I mean? Like, so he yeah. said, it sounds like a U2 song. Not even that he was disparaging U2, but I get what he's saying. Like, he didn't, he, he doesn't want a replacement song that sounds like U2, and that's valid. Right. I, I accept that. For me, I'm like, yeah, it does kind of sound like a U2 song. It's anthemic. Uh, you know, it has that feel, but that's why I love it. Um, yeah, it's got like the delay, like kind of like, you know, drizzled all over every part of the song. Yes. But to me, this could have been a hit, I think, if it yeah. was pushed. Like it's catchy. It's, um, you know, it's got enough of that uh, clever replacements vibe to it. Plus, this is where they get the title of the record from. Yeah. So obviously yeah. they thought that it was uh, a strong contender. Mm hmm. You know, the whole, I, and I, as I, I could see people saying it's cheesy, but I love the whole whispered, just don't tell us, you know, don't tell us all. Yeah. Why not? That's great. Why not? There's a misheard lyric in this one, right? Um. Well, I saw your, I, I'm throwing you under the bus. Do it. Because I it. was like, I saw you, you were citing some, the Paul lyrics. Yeah. You know, like we talked about, we'll inherit the earth, but we don't want it. Okay. You know, and that's, yeah, that's totally Paul. But then what, what I thought was interesting is your lyric, I was like, oh, this is a very Paul lyric. And then I was like, I always thought it said, and then I looked and I was right. Cause I was like, oh, cause I'm terrible with lyrics. Yeah. So what is he actually saying? See, I so thought you, you said, saying... it's, it's been an hour since birth. Yeah. What are you doing on it? And like, that sounds like a Paul lyric. Right. Like, dude, you've been here an hour, get off or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's, it's been hours since birth. Oh, you are S gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so, which I like because it's to me, the, the, the actual lyric is sort of like, you know, will inherit the earth. Like I could see, you know, it's something people I think can identify with. Like, yeah, it's been, this is ours, man. Yeah. Like, get out of my way. Yeah, but it's also like, okay, so there's, I, I I think, despite my having like misheard the lyric, I still think that there's like a perfect kind of Paul paradox in there, right? So it's kind of like, like, they don't want it, like it's responsibility that they're not interested in or equipped to handle, but still like, they're kind of defensive and territorial about it. And like, get out of here, like, you don't deserve to be here kind of thing. Right. Um, no, I, I definitely, I definitely can see that. And it, um, I, I, I just, the I, I really like this one, the the version on dead man's pop is a little more stripped down. I probably should have asked. I wonder if Sal, um, prefers that is, is, is a little less 
uh allergic to that one yeah yeah like like because because this one i mean the beginning with the here like the typewriter or whatever it is yeah um there's you know sound effects like they're gone because what i did do actually last night before this i'd listened to this album you know all week uh to prep for the episode but last night i played this and then i played um the dead man's pop yeah versions just to see um i'm excited to eventually talk about to do that one those versions but yeah i get sounds like point of view on like the, but this is a u2 song i'm not a huge u2 guy like i have respect for u2 and like i, I hear what sal's saying i get that point of view um i still think it's a great song i just think it's like a different kind of anthem than the replacements have on their other albums um it's it's more of like a u2 style <laughs> yeah like it's not it's not bastards of young exactly exactly but at the same time, it's still the same band that wrote it. Like it has that, like, you know, from, well, granted, now that's a misheard lyric that we talked about, you know, it's weighed yeah. on the sons of no one, but let's just say you think it's, we are the sons of no one. Like everybody thought we'll inherit the earth, but we don't want it. Kind of a similar yeah. vibe, right? Yeah. It's like so, a kind of it's a biblical, biblical in, you know, um, sort of intonation there. So up next is a uh, one of the hits. Yeah, Aiken to be. I mean, this. I really, my note could have just said the blueprint for alt country. Yeah, seriously, I man. So so many bands owe their entire career to this song. Its existence is like what I'm gonna say. The Counting Crows, like bands that I like, like Chamberlain. I really like Chamberlain. Like I think that yeah. the, moon, the Moon My Saddle. Like you can hear that they heard this and they were like, <gasps> whoa, dude. Counting Crow, Counting Crows would do a amazing version of this song yeah oh man someone yeah. make that happen yeah I'm, i mean i'm assuming adam duritz listens to this podcast of course yeah so well we've kind of turned down his offers to be interviewed yeah. a few times yeah i mean we we, we already got grant well, did, did counting crows win a grammy probably yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um but yeah like this song is is definitely the blueprint for all that all like to me like wilco ryan adams yeah you yeah, know all yeah. the stuff you talked about like um amazing lyrics mm -hmm. um and uh there's a cool cover of this by the band pinhead gunpowder have you ever oh, heard of them no i mean i know that band i didn't know that they covered it Go yeah check it out. okay so you know who you know who the band is yeah right? yeah it's billy joe from green day and uh aaron comet bus from crimp shrine and um a guy from Monsula and huh. I think Jason White who's now like a touring member of Green Day but they do a it's a little more rocked up than the um replacements version but it's it's really good and you know Billy Joe um is a known replacements uh fanatic yeah um and you know replacements in Husker Du which was always interesting. Everyone with Green Day, you know, they would say like Green Day rips off the Descendants, and mm -mm. Billy Joe's gone on record to saying like he's not even a Descendants fan. Like it yeah. was all uh, this this Minneapolis stuff. Well, so, which when we talked to him on here, yeah, because <laughs> um, again, I'm sure he listens. Yeah, and his, I'm sure he's like, yeah, he's he's eager. I know he's like eager to be on the show. So yeah, so maybe we'll do him and, and Adam Duritz. We'll finally let him on after. Yeah. We'll get Dave Grohl first, but yeah, but yeah, um, I'm, I agree with what you said. Like this is the song that that 
you know, I know I said this is the record, but even more specifically, like this is the song. When people say like, oh, this band sounds like the replacements, usually they're talking about that feel. Yeah, and like Hottest of Hot Takes, this might be my favorite replacement song. Again, not the best. Like I just want to make that distinction between favorite and best quite clear. But I think this might like soup to nuts, like everything in the song, the music, the message. Um, and it also has like a little less of that, like coming right after um, Will and Her I think this, like right after Will and Heart the Earth, where you hear, kind of hear that, like, you know, everything has this like sheen of like, digital delay on it or whatever you know and this one um has a much more kind of like i'd say like personal kind of feel to it um i know that it was uh bob mayer talks about it in the book but the the lyrics for the song were like you know ones that paul like spent a lot of time on then yeah and it's it's like you said uh it's it's a um it has a little less of that spit shine on it. Yeah, exactly. Because it's just like an acoustic, you know, acoustic guitar based, um, not a, you know, it's not, it's not a uh, crunchy, like some of the, uh, like, uh, you know, song coming up in a couple tracks. Yeah. Anywhere is better than here. Yeah. Like that's, it's not that, um, they're blind. We talked a little bit about this. Yeah. Um, I can also picture Ray chat, Ray Charles, singing i think this is a beautiful song i agree with you yeah um like to me this could have been a hit on like adult contemporary radio yeah like yeah i mean what a song and just the the feeling of it and paul's paul's vocal take on here yeah yeah to that point about like adult like you can adult contemporary radio like you can totally hear like even like around the same time, like you could hear like Style Council's Long Hot Summer followed by <laughs> the replacements. Yeah. Line. Like, um, and I, some people would say that's an insult, but it's yeah. not like, I, I mean, like, I like Style Council. <laughs> yeah. Like th this, this song, um, I just think like, it sounds almost like it could have been in a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So like this, there's just something that's like kind of cozy, like, a, you know, about it. Like, um, yeah, I can totally hear like this. Well, yeah. Like, like, a, a yeah. Like a movie from around that's in like a rom-com kind of situation. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, like it could have been a, a, a scene, uh, in a movie. Um, I'll never so, hear this song though without thinking about the story about him trying to get Ray Charles to sing on same. it. Same. I think and, it literally every time. Yeah. I howled out loud with laughter when I read that part of the book. Same. Yeah. So next we have Any Worse Better Than Here. I think um, the sequencing is cool because you're coming off of Aiken to be and then this, and then you get this like rocker. Yeah. Um, this one is like, it's heavy for them. Yeah. I never like sat down and tried to learn on guitar, but it sounds like they have like, like a drop D tuning or something to it. Like it's, um, you can almost, it's kind of like a kind of like bar, not, it's not like an upbeat one, but like a kind of like bar room rocker feel to it. Like, you yeah, can, absolutely. You could see where this could fit on Please to Meet Me. But I do think the, the production really um, and the, the mixing really, really stands out on this one. Um, you can, you know, 
I think decide for yourself if that's um, uh, good or bad. And I love like the the ending, dun, dun, you know that whole yeah. like build up and the yeah it's it's, a, it's it's this one I think too could this one is more like if this was a dirtier production this could have been like the early nineties it could have been like a you know they play Soul Asylum somebody to shove and right play right this. yes exactly probably the heaviest um, song on the album and the next yeah one absolutely asking me lies. Yeah, Paul's uh, Paul's attempt at a Jackson Five song <laughs> that totally works. Yeah, like this song is so good, and this is another one that I feel like could have been in a movie. Yeah, yeah, it's a killer song. It's like it's a could have been on the radio, like too. Yeah, it's got, but like yeah, the quirky lyrics. Like, yeah, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> at a Mexican bar mitzvah for 700 years is right. a hilarious lyric. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so Paul. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but like an, a similarly odd lyric in the next song, um, I dreamt I was surfer Joe and what that means, I don't know. Yeah, like if that's only Paul could write that. Yeah. Yeah, and Asking Me Lies, you know, it's just like the 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 lyric and the hook is just such a perfect Paul contradiction. It's like just just too cute by like one half. Yeah, telling me questions, asking me lies. Um it's like great. Clever yeah, that like clever like play of of uh you know, mixing it up. Yeah. Like I sometimes I do stuff like that on purpose sometimes like to throw my wife off. <laughs> nice. Like I'll say, like, I'll do like, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of like a two word, uh, two word thing. And I'll uh, like, Oh, I do it at work too. Like we have this thing called a shared pending file, but like I'll, I'll call it paired shending. <laughs> you know what I mean? So right. it's like, it's like that kind of thing where it's like, you know, obviously you would be telling lies and asking questions, but you do it the opposite and it's like too cute by a half turn. Yeah. Or in my case, probably just fucking annoying, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really care. Um, I don't know if any of Greg's coworkers listen to this podcast. <laughs> paired, yeah, paired, paired shending. Um, I do it a lot in the chat at work. It's how I stay sane. But yeah. So up next is like what we talked about, their biggest hit. Charted yeah. on regular radio. Yeah, I'll be you. Yeah, so I mean, it's an amazing song. It's like it's you know, it had the video. It um, obviously Petty stole the line, right? What's the line from Bob Mayer's book though, where he was like, I think um, Westerberg's response was like, "I'm flattered, but I would, I would have stolen something from him if he had anything worth stealing." Oh, yeah, because he steals a rebel without a clue. Yeah. But, like, my my thing was, was is a rebel without a clue? And I'm not trying to take away from uh, Paul, but, like, did he, like, coin that phrase or was that already, like, a... That's a good question. I mean, I'm, he didn't have a copyright on it, for Christ's sake. You know, you'll hear, like, you know, so as so-and-so always said if you point one finger at somebody of three pointing back at you and it's like, no, that's not the person who. Right. Right. Why are we like, like I wonder, cause I swear I, 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 I meant now granted, I don't know if she's wrong, but she's usually right. I mentioned it to Becca, my, my wife. <laughs> and um, 
you know, we were, that song came on and I said, Oh, look, Tom Petty stole this line. And she, she said something like, I don't think, I don't think uh, that he invented that line either, but yeah. I don't know. It sounds like a Paul line. Wasn't there someone a, let us know. Yeah. Yeah. Right linguists in. out there. Or would it be a linguist that would study that or yeah. Give us the etymology of the phrase. Um, but it kind of reminds me of like, didn't, wasn't there an episode of Kirby or enthusiasm where like Richard Lewis tried to claim that he coined the term like blank from hell. Yes, the blank from hell. Yes, yes, Richard Lewis. <laughs> he says he invented the phrase. You know, the, this is the uh, the bartender from hell. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say, was there a Kirby enthusiasm where the guy said that his father invented the Cobb salad? <laughs> Bob Cobb. <laughs> um. um but yeah, no, I, who knows? Yeah, well, we have to it's love this. A, I mean, it's, it's not the first appearance of it, but the, I mean, the name of our podcast is said in the song. Yes, I was going to say like this, we we get a little name check. Yeah, um, it was cool of them to, you know, know we were going to do this and then to mention our podcast. <laughs> 30 years yeah, later. To know that a podcast would be a thing. And then. Um, I, I love this song. Yeah. You be me for a while and I'll be you. Mm-hmm. That's a great lyric. Yeah. Um. Apparently Slim Dunlap messed up on this record huh. on this, on this song. And um, like to the naked ear, like we can't hear it, but he can. And he said like, there's a quote in all over, but the shouting, the oral history of the replacements book where he says something like, you know, he would go to like a twins game and they would play it on the speaker still. And he hears it. The, the mistake and he just like cringes oh, that's gotta hurt so we are coming to the home stretch of the album we're already on you know halfway through side two yeah i won't it's an underappreciated song it's like such a like a cop like, like again like it's like a pretty like like brash lyric there you want me to write a letter or a note i won't yeah like this is this is Maybe this album's IOU, kind of. Yeah. Um, not as good as IOU though, but um, yeah, it's it's this is like arguably the most like rocked up one, like yeah. as far as being fat on the faster tempo. The lyric always reminds me of whatever that old song is, the one that's like yakety 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 yak. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know why I always think of that when I hear this. Yeah. Um yeah, but like they're they're go- they're they're kind of going for like a, um, you know, like a, that kind of like a like a like a kind of like, like I could hear this song. Please to meet me easily. Yeah, is this like is this them like, who are the influences of this, of this song? Is this like Rolling Stones or right. like no? Like yeah. I don't know. I don't. I'm not as, I'm not like super familiar with Rolling Stones as far as like album, you know, obviously I know a ton of their songs, Yeah, but like, I'm like, I, I don't know if this was like their attempt at doing like a stonesy type song, but uh, yeah. it's a cool song. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's, there's no, so I'll say it now. Another phrase I learned from, from Javier from where it went is uh skippers. There's no skippers no. on this. Yeah. I would agree. This is a, this is like really solid. And, and that's where your argument for best holds water for me okay because there's no skippers so yeah Yeah. maybe technically do i agree i don't know jury's out on that but 
I won't argue like there, if there's no songs to skip, whereas some of them have songs where you're like, eh, this is like a throwaway, you know? Yeah. You're like, am I going to skip any songs? I won't. Yeah, like, won't, won't, won't. <laughs> exactly. But like, <laughs> there's no, like you can listen to this one straight through. Yeah. Easy, easy. So, um, rock and roll ghost. Yeah. This is an important song. Um, I like, I appreciate and respect the kind of contradicting a little bit what I was just saying. Like, I appreciate the sentiment and the importance of it. It doesn't do a whole lot for me. I don't skip it. Like, it's not a song I dislike. Um, but if I, if I had to pick my, like, maybe my least favorite song on the album, it would be this one. Wow. Really? Yeah. See, mine, mine would be the previous track. Ah. Like if I had to if gun to head, if someone said, you know what, this is one song too many. Yeah. I would be like, oh, you can take I won't off. Uh-huh. I'm actually surprised. For some reason, I would have thought this would have been like your uh, your your hot track, as we say. I got to go. Maybe I'll like give it like another more critical, like a couple critical listens. But um... the story in Trouble Boys talking about the lyric and how yeah. like, depressing it was because like Paul at that point, like was going through a lot of like his alcohol problems and everything. Yeah. And um, the whole idea, like the rock and roll ghost. Yeah. And, um, this. So I forget slash don't know if Dead Man's Pop was sequenced differently because that was the way the band originally wanted it or if they just thought it was better. But Dead Man's Pop closes with this song. And to me, this this is, is an album closing closer. song. Yeah. I get that. And I totally hear like what you're like everything. I think that this song um to kind of put my stuff out there a little bit, but like, I feel like if I heard this song when I was like maybe 26 or 27, I would have like, it would have really connected with me a lot, lot more. Um, but as I shared in the beginning of this episode, I was a, you know, fully grown adult married man, like by the time I heard this record. Um, and yeah, I just think mental health wise, I was in a very different state, like at the point in my life when I heard this. Um, but I get that it's an important and powerful song. Um, and I, I also agree that I think it makes a lot more sense as an album closer. Yeah. But it's not the album closer. No, next we get Darlin' one. There's one more. And um, I think this song's great. Yeah, I actually, so so studying up for this rec, for this episode, um, I actually gained like a really new appreciation for this song. Um, it just really popped out of me. I think it's an underappreciated track. And it is. That, it's- you get that anthemic. like anthemic, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, this one also, I think, has a little U2 vibe to it. Definitely, definitely. Um, would love to see U2 actually play this song. I think that would be that would be cool. You got to think, too, around this era, what was Joshua Tree was like one of the biggest records, too, in the, you know, this era of the 80s. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's it. That's Darling one. I don't have too much to add. Just I think it's a great song. Yeah. So all right. Well, on to favorite songs. Greg, you gotta go first. I will. So I'm gonna be a hundred percent honest and say, like, I wrestled with what to pick as a favorite. And I actually told myself, you know what? You're gonna go through the track by track with Jude. You're gonna talk about it, and then you're just gonna shoot from the hip. Do it. Um so I'm going to say anywhere is better than here is huh. mine for today because it's just um, like, I just love that idea. Like the anywhere is better than here. Like, Oh man, this sucks. 
maybe it's because I was listening to it a lot while I was working and I hate working. And I was like, Oh my God, there's anything I'd rather be doing right now. Yeah. Um, and the heaviness and Paul's vocal on it. it. I love it. I'm totally with you though. Like if, if that song were on soul asylums, grave dancers union, like it would have been, you'd be seeing the video, like that would be, you'd hear it all the time today on the radio at the grocery store. Like you'd see the video a billion times in the nineties. You know what I mean? I just think oh, they yeah. were, they were like a little bit ahead of the curve with that one. Yeah. Like they were literally two and a half years ahead of schedule. Yeah. Yeah. Because then by the next record, they went full, like, you know, completely the other way. away right. from, but yeah, I don't know this song. Um, if I find it in my head a lot, whenever I listen to it and um, I just really like it, but really almost any of these I, I could have picked as a, as a favorite. Like yeah, I did wrestle no with, yeah. I wrestled with uh, their blind actually. Um, and a couple others, but I decided to throw a little curveball. I like it. I like, and much to Sal's chagrin, I did read, I was like, is will inherit the earth? I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Take that, but I, went with, I went with this instead. Um, I mean, yeah, I've already, my favorite, I've already put my cards out there on the table. My favorite song on this album is one of my favorite replacement songs, which is Aiken to be. Um, you can't go wrong with it. Yeah. For all the reasons I outlined, it's just, I think it's, I think it's not only an amazing song. I, I continue to argue that I think it's a very important song, um, bold statement, but like maybe even as important of a song as like smells like teen spirit or something like that. I can see that. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously critically or not critically commercially, it didn't make the same impact, yeah. but the, the ripples, right. Um, I mean, the, the ripples of it can be heard, like you said, in stuff that ended up being all the rage a few years later. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this time folks thanks for listening um we're looking forward to you joining us on our future explorations of this essential midwestern punk although i mean know that we say that at the end of every episode but this is like very loosely characterized as a punk record yeah um, but i mean I, and and truly i say this with utmost sincerity we hope that it's not as long of a gap yeah um, in episodes because i, I mean i'm I'll t- I miss doing this with you. I know, dude. same, yeah. Um, and I miss talking about this stuff um, because I don't really get to talk about it. You know, my my other night job is not even tangentially related to the replacements, so it's not yeah. like it's going to come up in a you know in a episode or anything where I can sort of spew a little bit. So I or or who's could do so. Yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, plus we got to start doing it more regularly just so that, I mean, finally we can like, you know, appease Adam Duritz and Billy Cho. Um, and Dave Grohl. Yeah. And, uh, gosh, who else? James, James Gunn is a big replacements fan and he, yeah. he, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That. So, you know, we got to Yeah. Michael Imperioli oh, has Bob always been Odin Kirk. Yeah. Right. Of course. Which actually speaking of our guest next time. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> but <clears throat> next time we figured we haven't done uh, an interview in a while. I guess our last one, we were talking off camera. Um, our last one was with Bob Meir, um, which if you haven't listened to it, you know, go back and give Check that a out. listen, but um, it'll be an interview with a guest as 
yet to be determined, but it'll be good and fun. Cool. All right, man. We'll see you all next time. You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Did that shirt just come from Rev? Oh, no, wait, that's not on. That record's not. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah.